Well, that was kind of nice. I'm thinking there. Just what a lovely introduction to a sermon on anger and lust. Perfect. <laughs> Just going to read Matthew 5, if I may. And uh, we've been working our way, wiggling our way through here. Uh, we reached verse 21. I'm going to read a bit of a stretch of scripture for you here, so hang in there. It goes like this. You've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in, the da in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. Verse 27, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown to. This is cheerful stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Verse 30, and if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wonderful, amen. Okay, just a bit of a recap. It's been a few weeks, you know. I know, it just feels like yesterday since we were here on the Sermon on the Mount. We've had Christmas and all sorts of fun since then. But um, just, just to, to summarize, just quickly where we've been, we started off with the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, which says, you know, God blesses those who are poor, realize their need for him. God blesses those who mourn. God blesses the humble, you know, the meek, the persecuted, all those wonderful things. And we discussed that that essentially was the text. Jesus quoted those, and then he sort of dived in and unfolded it. The message of the Beatitudes is that there is a place of blessing, unquestionably, but it isn't where you'd instinctively think. In fact, Jesus is talking here about a revolution called the series Jesus Revolution. Upside down is the right way up. Jesus came and turned principles, he turned religion, he turned things upside down. Principles like this. The way up is down. The Pharisees were trying to push themselves, work their way, climb over whomever was necessary to reach the top. And Jesus said, the way up is down on your knees. Upside down. Revolutionary. Transformation works inside out, not outside in. That it's not the compliance to all these rules and regulations, it's the outworking of the spirit of the law on the inside of you, written on your heart, that produces a righteous life. That wholeness starts with brokenness. That fullness actually, ironically, is triggered by an emptiness, by a desperation, by a hunger and thirst. That opens the door to that 
fullness. Then, as he launches into the sermon, there's an, an introduction, an inspiration for us, which says, you know, you are called to be, we should be in the world, salt and light. You know, this is what we could look like. If we were to catch the Beatitudes, if we would allow God to, to fashion that, to form that in our hearts, then we could be salt. We looked at all the different qualities of salt. We could be light. How desperately this world needs light. If we buy in to this revolution that Jesus came to teach. Then the next section is, is, a, te- is, is a text about, about the law. And, and what we have in here, this is the last message actually in this series, is a really strong statement of intent from Jesus right at the start, clearing up an inevitable dispute. What about the law? What about the Ten Commandments? Are we supposed to comply with that, obey with that? You know, the Beatitude is so different. What's, what's going on? And in that little passage, really, again, revolutionary, Jesus says, makes this extraordinary statement that I am coming to fulfill the law. Every jot and tittle, every detail, every requirement, every sacrifice, everything it shadows, everything it prophesies, Jesus was coming to fulfill that. And that tough though the, the moral standards of the Mosaic law were, that this new life, this spirit-filled life, where, where the spirit is now written on our hearts, that actually we should aspire to and should attain an even higher standard than what appeared to be really tough stuff in the Mosaic law. So now we've, we've worked through that. We've now arrived at, at verse 21. Now Jesus starts to zoom in on some specifics. He starts to outline now a few details of what this new life should look like. And in this passage here, we're probably familiar with it. The message, I guess, is, is quite simple. And it goes something like this. Murder is clearly a problem. You know, we're right under the law, to clamp down hard on murder. But actually, it's not just murder. Anger is also a big deal. You know, that, that internal frustration, that, that rage, you know, those careless, aggressive words. You know, in, in the context of this text, the curses, legal disputes, bad debts, all of that kind of thing is a big deal. And it's not just adultery that is a problem, though that clearly is a problem, but actually lust, that inner secret sin, is a problem too. Not just the physical act, which of course has devastating consequences, but, but a pure, impure, internal world. That too can be hugely damaging. And so Jesus ends that section with this is amazing illustration. says, you know, it's better to gouge out your good eye. Better to cut off your hand. Do anything you can to steer clear of this world of poison. And I think the sense being, yes, these, these terrible outward acts of murder and adultery, yes, they're real, but actually there's this internal world. There's this secret world. And that actually is just as damaging, more devastating. It's possible if we become overcome with anger and lust to actually be full of poison. And actually we're being eaten away and corroded from the inside. So, just quickly, why is it that Jesus, at this point that Jesus delves into this? Why does he ask these particular questions? Three quick points, really, to a bit of context, and then we're going to zoom in on anger and lust. Whoopie do. Number one, there's a clear message, runs through the whole of this sermon, which is that you Pharisees, you self-righteous 
superior bunch aren't actually quite as pure and holy as you've led us all to believe, as you pretend. You know, your public persona might be really, really impressive. Externally, everything appears to be fine and dandy. You know, your Sunday best is very good. But it's what's happening on the inside is just as important. Didn't Jesus say that it's what's on the inside that comes out that makes you clean or unclean? Jesus is saying your legalism, your religious compliance, your self-righteousness is not good enough. It's not the answer. Compliance to, to outside influences, outside pressure, outside regulation law can only take you so far. What you need is the deep internal work of the Holy Spirit, who is the righteous one. If you want to live a righteous life, it's going to result from an outpouring of the righteous one, the one inside of us who sanctifies, the one inside of us who heals, the one inside of us who transforms. And actually, it's, it's that change on the inside that will produce the righteousness on the outside. And though you may look righteous on the outside, actually inside, you're full of anger. Outside, you may well be full of lust. Inside, you may well be actually a mess. Second sort of point here that Jesus is making, I think, is, is who are we to measure and compare the relative demerits of sin? You know, you highlight murder and adultery. I mean, they came down really strong on that, didn't they, in the law? You know, that woman caught in adultery, they had the stones in their hands ready to fling. Rightly so, murder and adultery are a big deal, clearly. But sin is sin. The Bible says there is no difference. For all have fallen short. Every sin has consequences. All sin must be judged. And actually, as soon as you've committed one sin, you've tipped over the line. And that in itself is inevitable because under the old covenant, we're born a sinner. Which is why we all need to be born again a saint. To the point we're all guilty. We're all in need of a saviour. We're all incapable of attaining the standard through our own efforts. And I think part of the purpose of this passage is to make sure that people got that. Even if you're not a murderer. Don't pat yourself on the back too hard because for sure at some time or another you've erupted in anger. And even if you're not an adulterer, you know, don't, don't pat yourself on the back too hard because I'm sure that at one time or another you've had lustful thoughts. The point, sin is bad. All sin is bad. And, and, and actually there's limited value in debating the merits and severity comparatively. The fact is, sin must be judged. Sin will be judged. And here's the kicker for us. Sin has been judged. It's been judged, it's been found guilty, and the punishment has been paid in full. It goes something like this. Jesus made the rules. Jesus determined the consequences. He served as judge and jury and legal advocate 
and he demanded that the whole weight of the law be thrown at the guilty. But at the last minute, he nudged us out the way, took our place in the dock, and took the punishment in full. It's the gospel. It's wonderful. And it's so important that they got that. The third thing before we dive into anger and lust is to recognize actually how damaging these secret sins can be. And to encourage us really to do whatever it takes, whatever must be done to steer well clear of these things. You know, the law, whether it's the, the letter of the law or the spirit of the law, is about boundaries. Step over those boundaries and you will face consequences. And God gives us boundaries for our own protection. And God knows best. Hence a really, really strong warning about these secret sins. Okay, let's dive into them a little bit. Today, we're not going to look at murder and adultery because I'm rather hoping that we're untainted in those areas. What about anger and lust? I'd say this. Are these not huge issues for modern man? I can't comment for you ladies, but I'm going to take a leap and I'm going to assume that they might be a little wee problem for you too. But certainly by Jesus' message here, by Jesus' principles, by Jesus' definitions, actually we're probably all vulnerable to both anger and lust. Now, when it comes to anger, I didn't really get angry until I had kids. <laughs> Apart from the occasional outburst on the hockey field and when I was given out LBW. Your children can locate and push buttons that you don't even realize that you have. And I'm saying that not just to entertain you, but so that you realize this is a problem that we all face. You know, this is, a, this is a challenging issue. Think about lust for a second. I mean, we are absolutely bombarded with lustful images. You know, the world entices you to the brink and crucifies you when you step over the edge. It's rotten. You know, we know that anger and lust are, are wrong. We know they're damaging. We know they're destructive. We know that we're all candidates. And we recognize that there will be consequences. So the question for us this morning becomes, how can I minimize in my life, how can I minimize the impact of anger and lust? How can I win the fight? How, how can I stop falling into that same ditch? Whether it's anger, whether it's your kids pushing that button again and you're blowing and thinking, ah, oh, nuts, what did I do? Maybe it's lust, whatever it is. I mean, lust is a really, you know, is a, is a snare that can really tie you in. You know, how can we win that fight? How can we break free from that? I think the answer is to be found in what we've already read. It's to be found in the process through the Sermon on the Mount, through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes really talks about life on a higher plane. Or maybe life on a lower plane, if you know what I mean. Certainly, it talks about a life that is humbler. It talks about a life that is less self-interested. And it talks about a life that is more mature. And as we've, we've touched from time to time through this series, 
the objective through all of this actually is not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The idea that actually the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on a, a Spirit-filled life. This is what it should look like if we are Spirit-filled. And the objective out of that is not to offend, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. My premise today, as we, as we look at these two, is that we have three weapons in our fight against anger and lust. Three tools, if you like, three strategies, three assets, three voices. And they're this. Number one is the wisdom of the word. Number two is the warning of the spirit. And number three is the walk of love. What I want to do is just spend the next 10, 15 minutes or so just looking at those three in the context of anger and lust. So number one is the wisdom of the word. So the question becomes, what does the word say? Great question to ask ourselves. What does the word say? Right at the outset, we need to understand how crucial it is to accept God's word as authority. God's word as wisdom. God's word as truth. Here comes a startling revelation. I recommend you catch it. God knows best. God's word produces in us the very life and freedom that we search for. You know, God's word for us is the secure path. It is the firm foundation. It is it's the solid rock. And so the question is, have I accepted the dangers? Have I accepted the sinfulness have I just accepted the destructive power of anger and lust? What does Scripture say? Colossians 3 verse 5 says, So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Put them to death. It says, Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Have nothing to do with it. Then in Ephesians 4, Verse 26 says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. The reality is both anger and lust give the devil a foothold into your life. The question is, why, why would you do that? Why would you not slam every door shut to make sure he can't get in? I mean, he causes enough damage as it is. I read this week that, that um, anger is like, in, the idea of giving the devil a foothold is like inviting the devil round for a sleepover. Why would you do that? Maybe you've heard this, this line before in, in terms of saying, give him an inch and he thinks he's a ruler. Right? Here's, I like that one. R.T. Kendall, who's, I've made no secret, his book I'm reading on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, giving the devil a foothold means we give the devil an authorization, a warrant, if you like, to ride on top of our anger. So God walks away and the devil steps in. Put in my notes, very theological term. Ouch, why would you do that? Why would you give the devil any authority? We understand that God is the only one who has authority unless we relinquish it, 
Unless we give it up, why would we do that? Why would we even open a tiny crack that he can come in and do what he does? In your anger, do not sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. We need to understand that anger in itself is not sin. In fact, I, I hope that we have a bit of passion. I hope that there, in fact, there are things that we really should be angry about. And anger actually can be a catalyst for righteousness and justice on one side, but can also be a catalyst for a whole world of hurt and regret on the other side. There is a point at which anger crosses over and becomes sinful. It ceases being righteous anger and starts to become carnal anger. So I pondered that a little bit and thought, okay, where is the flip over? Where is the crossover? What's the difference? I thought it was this. Once your words and your thoughts become carnal or sinful, once your thoughts start becoming sinful, once your words start becoming sinful, carnal, aggressive, sarcastic, belittling, impure, then you've crossed over from righteous anger to carnal anger. As soon as the thing that's motivating you on the inside becomes selfish, once it becomes about self-preservation, once it becomes about self-defense, about self-promotion, then you've crossed over. Once it becomes a matter of tearing someone else down to lift yourself up, then you've crossed over. As soon as you step out of walking in love, you know, read the definition of love walking, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as soon as you step out of that, it becomes carnal anger. How about this one? Once, rather than you controlling it, it starts to control you. Then you've crossed over from righteous anger into sin. Kendall said this, if it is righteous anger, your heart will ache. If it is righteous anger, your heart will ache, but you won't feel agitated. You'll be able to stay calm. In many ways, detached from a personal feeling, because it's not about you. You'll, you'll be able to speak the truth, but it'll still be in love. It won't be abrasive in any way. And your personal ego will not be involved. We have a great example of Jesus operating out of righteous anger where he goes into the temple and he turns over the temple trader's table. I mean, Jesus was angry. I suspect you could have seen the smoke coming out of his. I suspect his face went a little bit red. But even though he was strong, even though it was decisive, even though he was tough, actually, he was always under control. He was always spirit-led and he never, ever stepped out of love. In fact, he did it out of pure love. Sometimes, love must be tough. I'd say about anger, anger is complex. Anger is multi-layered. Anger is unpredictable. Do you ever have, have that word, earth, did that come from? Anger can be very deep-rooted. Different types of anger, Righteous anger we've talked about. There's repressed anger. There's a jealous anger, a judgmental anger. There's internal anger that we might call bitterness. There's an external anger where now it's spilt out. In the past, I've defined it as kind of exploders 
and slow leakers. You know, shake up the Pepsi bottle, you know, rip the top off and boosh, it all comes out. Maybe that's you. Maybe you know people like that. Duck, take cover. They're about to explode. Or, you know, if you take that Coke can bottle off very gently and you get this slow leak. Maybe you're the kind of person who, you know, maybe doesn't explode, but their little insidious, sarcastic, nasty comments dumped over and over and over again, over an extended period of time. I've heard them described as spewers and stewers. And the chances are probably you're one of those. Either way, Mark Twain said that anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. You know, we're all subject to frustration. We're all subject to antagonism, what I might call seeds of anger. Even if you haven't got kids, you're subject to those things. The key becomes, whimsically think about how I'm going to get this message through to my children. The message becomes, how do you learn to process that? How do you learn to process anger so that seed works good and not harm? That it stays righteous and doesn't cross over into carnal sinful. And if we're honest, it takes maturity and skill to react right when we're provoked, doesn't it? Not sure we're born with those skills. Look at the Matthew 5 lessons here. What did Jesus say when you're exposed? In your heart, at least. Leave your sacrifice at the altar and go make reconciliation. Go fix it. Go make restitution. Go and do whatever it takes. Here's a line. Anger is what causes us to lose our temper. Pride is what keeps us there. You know, Jesus' message here is settle matters quickly or it'll get much worse. Swallow your pride. Let go of your stubbornness. Otherwise, not only will you lose the battle, the danger is you will lose the war because something deep-rooted, poisonous takes place on the inside. That's what Jesus said. Paul, he said this. He said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because it's really dangerous. You know, that, that fantasy world, that, those kind of lingering thoughts. I don't know about you, but you know, you lie... To half awake, half asleep at night, semi-conscious, and you're playing things over in your mind, and by the time you wake up in the morning, it's magnified over and over and over. At the start, your boss offended you by the morning, he's dead. On the <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But the fact is, if we don't deal with anger, it becomes like a ticking bomb. And the consequences of unresolved anger, seeds of offense, festering frustration are not pretty. Even if it's unseen, it can be devastating. No, it's not murder, but I tell you, it comes from the same family. So the first step, I think, is recognition. Craig Rochelle talks about stop hiding and start seeking. Oh, that's good. First step is recognition, understanding and accepting where the boundaries are and why. Submitting to God's wise principles and cultivating that quick, unquestioning obedience. Number one is, what does the Word say? Yeah. Number two is, what does the Holy Spirit say? What does the Holy Spirit say? What we would call the inward witness. 
You know, that knowing on the inside, that still small voice, that warning, that uncomfortable, tight feeling you get when you're about to do what you know you probably shouldn't. The expectation for believers, Romans 8, 14 says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The expectation that as children of God, we should be ever led by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's always leading. He's always guiding. He's always nudging. And we do very, very well to learn to listen. How many times have we ignored that gut warning and regretted it? When you replay it and you look back, you think, do you know what? I did, I did get this sense. I did get this warning. There was this red light, and I just did it anyway because the red mist came down, and I wanted to go smack them. How many times do we ignore that gut warning and regret it? You know what that gut warning is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the inward witness. We've referred repeatedly to this idea of grieving. And there's a sense, I think, as we are about to, as we are thinking, as we are stepping out, that the Holy Spirit is grieved. The Holy Spirit takes offense, if you were, and we need to learn to recognize when that's coming, recognize what that feels like. We need to learn what it is that causes the Holy One to blush, to balk, and actually to withdraw, just for a second. If you grieve the Holy Spirit, even just momentarily, there, there are some things that you risk. Number one, you risk missing his wisdom, missing his counsel. We'd be well advised to learn to respond to that quickly. Number one, we miss, risk missing his counsel, his wisdom. Number two, we risk forfeiting his grace. And a grace is God's empowerment to do what we probably cannot do in our own strength. The danger is we forfeit that grace momentarily as we step away. We step out of his favor. We step out of that empowerment. We step out of that provision. We step out of that promise just for a second. And for a moment, you're on your own. That's what it means, I think, to grieve the Holy Spirit. I'd say this. If you have red blood cells pumping around your body, you will experience, we will all experience baby seeds of anger and lust. In fact, as I hinted earlier, I hope there is some fire in your belly. Just make sure that it's pointed in the right direction. And God has filled this world with beautiful things. Some of them are humans of the opposite sex. Just recognize that again, there is a line where it flips from appreciation to sin. And I think Jesus' point here is that actually that line is closer and it's tighter and it's tougher than you think. You know, it's okay to look. It is not okay to touch. I think they got that. It's okay to look once. It is not okay to linger. It is certainly not okay to role play in your fertile imagination. This is a journey that lust takes. And it goes something like this. It starts off with normal attraction. And then it goes from there to temptation. It, if we're not careful, it goes from temptation to obsession. Then it can go from obsession to lust. You see the downward slippery slope here. And eventually it can go from lust to the physical act 
of adultery. It's like a seed that grows, a journey that it goes on. And I'd say this, lust is perilous. There is huge satanic investment in, massive resources thrown at this. Because for him, wrecking families is a key strategy in many ways. And ultimately, if he can defile your thoughts, you're in a pickle. You know, what, what are we confronted with in this day and age? Loose sexuality. Pornography. You know, from soft to hardcore, the lines have slipped in the last 20, 30 years. The Islamic world looks at us and thinks we are debased. You know, we have this politically correct world, don't we, right now contesting where these boundaries are. And what I've observed over and over again is one of the devil's key strategies. If he can, if he can test children, if he can infiltrate, if he can corrupt children when they're too young and they don't have the skills to cope with it. You know, what I was perhaps exposed to when I was 21, you know, maybe, maybe 16, and now they're getting exposed to it at 13, 12, 11. Look at what they're watching, what, look at what they're seeing, look at what's being advertised, look at how they're being encouraged to dress. They're not emotionally ready to cope with that. It's a dangerous, dangerous world. So, what's the solution? Well, the Bible makes it clear. Flee sexual immorality. Read it, didn't we? Colossians 3, verse 5. If the Spirit whispers, if the Spirit nudges, the Spirit tightens, then run for it. You've got to watch that movie to understand all that. You know, like a gazelle would run from a lion, just get out of there. Do whatever it takes to get away from any form of sexual immorality. And here's Jesus' picture. He says, for goodness sake, cut off your hand. That's what it takes. Gouge out your eye. If that's what it takes. Throw away your TV. Throw away your laptop. If that's what it takes. Just don't go to that bar. Just end that business relationship. Just leave that gym. Just cancel that magazine subscription. Do whatever it takes. John Stott, when he talks about this eye-gouging, hand-cutting-off thing. He says, what Jesus is not talking, he's not talking about self-maiming. He's not saying, actually, you need to do eye-gouging. He's not saying that. What he's saying is he's talking about a ruthless, moral self-denial. So in actual fact, you just don't look as though you didn't have an eye. Behave as if you had actually plucked it out and you were now blind. You know, for me, Personally, I've learned, I've taught myself an instinctive response. Whenever I go at number one, which is normal attraction, my immediate response is I pray in tongues. Five seconds, lift. Anger, same thing. And I've been watching myself over the last little while. You know, whether you pray in tongues, whether you pray, whatever you want to do, sing a worship song, immediately it's like pouring cold water on the flame. Do it. It works. Do anything, whatever it takes to flee, run away. Just a couple other thoughts on lust before we move on. Lust is often demonic. Jesus talked a bit, didn't he, quite often actually, about the unclean spirit. What do you think he was talking about there? And I think, in many ways, the unclean spirit is his trump card. You know, ministry team, you need to be aware of this. 
You know, sometimes you're in ministering and you get the sense there is something unclean. How do you know? Because you start thinking impure thoughts and immediately you've got to grab a hold of that. And the skill is, unquestionably, is to recognize thoughts that do not come from you. Recognize them. The enemy, I was taught when I was young, operates in the realm of suggestive thoughts. He just sows a little seed and we must learn to recognize those seeds that are coming from the outside and we reject them there and then. And the crux of this particular point is the Holy Spirit will show you which ones those are. He will expose those thoughts that have come from the outside, that are ungodly, that are unpure, that are unholy, that are actually in that ministry line context are a blatant attempt at distraction. He will expose what those thoughts are. Which again is why it's so important that we must walk with the Holy Spirit. We must learn to recognize what he's whispering. We must learn to respond to that and in this context to run. You can win the battle over lust. But don't be complacent. It's a battleground on which the enemy has won many victories. Last one. So number one, what would the word say? Number two, what does the Holy Spirit say? Number three is what would love do? What would love do? The love walk is, is how God operates. It's his MO. It's his way. It's his nature. And this actually is where we're going to be heading next week. We continue to read down through Matthew chapter 5. There are more details about what it means to walk in love. So I'm going to dwell here today to make a quick point. Romans 5, 5, a verse I quote often, talks about how the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have been filled with his love. Why? Because we've been filled with him. And he is love. Holy Spirit is an agent of love and compassion. We're just a vessel for that. So the inevitable consequence of a spirit-filled life is an outpouring of supernatural love. A book that I read 20 years ago, probably more, by Kenneth Hagen called Love, the Way to Victory. And in that, for me... It was all about confronting judgmentalism and gossip and forgiveness issues and, and, and about the benefits of walking in love like Jesus did as opposed to the perils of stepping out of love. And this is, I think, is like a line that goes straight down the middle. What would love do? What would Jesus do? And as soon as we step over that line, we're vulnerable. More, more of that next week, but... In essence, love does not do carnal anger. Doesn't do rage and malice. Love is not, sorry, lust is not love. In fact, lust is the polar opposite. Lust is selfish and fleshly and lust takes. Love is self-sacrificial. Love is spiritual. And love gives. The world is full of anger and lust. But we are called to live a new way. We're called to live in brighter light. We're called to live to a higher standard, but to that end we are fully armed. We are well prepared. And above all, we are Holy Spirit 
empowered. We have three tools, three weapons, three voices, three assets, three strategies. Number one, the wisdom of the word ringing in our ears, hopefully. Wrong thoughts. Number two, we have the warning of the Spirit tugging on our hearts. Learn for it. Listen for it. Watch for it. Learn to recognize it. The tugging, the warning. And number three, we have heavenly love prompting us always, stirring us always, outpouring out of us, hopefully, always. Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So, we're done. How do we, how do we respond to that this morning? I'm going to give you 10 minutes or so to prayerfully consider what I've talked about. Happy, cheerful stuff. And there are a couple of responses I'd like to present to you and ask you to take to the Lord, essentially. And the first one is, if you have a problem, anger, lust, if you have a problem, first of all, you need to acknowledge that you have a problem. And as Craig Rochelle says, stop running, sorry, stop, stop hiding, start seeking. We need to repent. How important that we are quick to repent, slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to repent and seek God. I, I, I'm going to take a bolt out of the blue here that there are people in this room with problems with anger and there are people in this room with problems with lust. Acknowledge, number one, that you have a problem. Take that to the Lord. Number two, is there anger lingering and is the sun going down? Because you know what happens? If the sun goes down on your anger, you give the devil a foothold. What is going on in your life that you need to cut out, stop, deal with, reconciliation, restitution, on your knees, whatever it is? Is the sun going down? If it is, this is a warning sign. I'd encourage you to respond to that. Third one, tipping over into lust now. Is there anything dramatic that needs to be cut away? Not physically. Literally, please. Don't want to be sued by anyone. I regretted it afterwards. I cut it off. Anything dramatic that needs to be cut away? Are there any flashing red lights? Are there any changes that you can make to your lifestyle right now to run, to flee, to do whatever it takes to get away from that, if that is an issue for you? And for all of us, really, in, in summary, I'd encourage you today to make a commitment to word, spirit, and love. Word, spirit, walking in the word, walking in the spirit, walking in love, the wisdom of the word, the warning of the spirit, to walk of love. I, I just thought about this whimsically as I close here. What a beautiful way to live. What a powerful way to live if we could live a life dominated by the wisdom of the word, the warning of the spirit, and the walk of love. Let's pray. Father, this is tough stuff in many ways. We recognize the perils of these areas. Sometimes we need to be honest and recognize that we struggle at times in these areas. Jesus addressed this in detail in the middle of his longest, most powerful, most important sermon, warning us 
of the consequences, giving us strategies to escape. Lord, I think what a, what a wonderful dream to live free of anger, carnal anger. To live in a world in which lust has been conquered. And Lord, we'd love to have that. So Lord, I just pray for everyone in the room today. Lord, I've spoken a lot of words. Uh, and my prayer is that you, Holy Spirit, would highlight that one word. That one thought, that one action, that one conviction, whatever it is. Lord, if there's anything that we need to do as a result of what's been brought to the surface today, as we spend a little bit of time in reflection, Lord, just encourage you. Lord, might we respond to that. Might we not brush it under the carpet, shove it under the pillow, but say, Lord, come and do in our hearts what needs to be done so we can shine that light so we can flush our system of any of this poison, so we can live this new life. Thank you, Lord.